China is troubled and creating ripple effects across the world as it grapples with a host of existential pressures. But there's one unfolding factor that's dangerously underappreciated, so important to China's future that it could lead to war. Those irritants, I don't see them promote, provoking a military response. This semiconductor scenario um, starts to look like something that might cross that line. China is suddenly in the headlines a lot these days, and for good reason. Big developments are underway there that will have big repercussions on global trade, financial markets, supply chains, and geopolitical stability. To give us a sense of just how big, we welcome George Calhoun to the program. George is a teaching professor at the Stephen Institute for Technology's School of Business with decades of experience in the high-tech industry and capital markets financing. He just had an article appear in Forbes, focusing on the acute tension brewing within China, particularly in one essential area that's dangerously underappreciated by the media at the moment. And I've asked him to help us better understand exactly what's going on. George, thank you so much for joining us today and on short notice too. Yeah, thank you. Fun to be here. Thanks. Well, look, before we get to the crux of your recent Forbes article, can you just give us a high-level summary of the big challenge that China's grappling with today, like demographics, uh, resources, public health, its economy, et cetera? Okay. Well, uh, books and books are written on that. So uh, a, a quick overview. I guess I would say that um, the big picture is that China is trying to do in one generation, what uh, the Western world, the Western economies in the United States uh, took two centuries to accomplish, to move from a, a rural agrarian uh, economy to a high-tech industrial, post-industrial economy. And to do that in such a short period of time is, is bound to uh, throw a lot of things out of joint uh, along the way. And so, you know, I think the the, the, the best perspective overall to take on China is kind of a patient one uh, and expect that um, it's going to take them some, uh, some start fits and starts to make the different pieces of their transition work. And I think, you know, maybe not to overreact to any of the specific uh, ins and outs of the policy at the moment. And um, Nevertheless, uh, it is such an important transition for China and for the global economy that I think we have a right to, to um, be critical and be concerned about some of the things that, that may be developing there. Um, you know, the, uh, there's a demographic dimension, of course. Um, there is a, a political dimension, the uh, resurgence, let's call it, of a, a more authoritarian model in the Chinese uh, regulatory regime. Uh, so, and there's a technology dimension. I mean, the Chinese uh, tech sector uh, 20 years ago, when I was in the industry, in the wireless industry, the China, China's presence was almost not really there yet. Uh, strange to say, in the year 2000, in the wireless world, which is the one that I knew, uh, China was not yet really a player. Today, they're, they're a dominant player. And 
it's amazing how far they've come and how quickly they've come up that curve uh, in a lot of the areas of technology. But I, it is a, an irregular process and uh, not all of the um, aspects of their engine are working in, in full harmony yet, I think, uh, with the goals that they're trying to achieve. All right, thanks. And I probably understand China about as well as the average American, which is not really all that much, which is one reason why I've asked you to come on here. Um, but, uh, you know, the challenges I know they are grappling with, you know, they have an aging population with the, the demographic challenge you mentioned there, right, with the one child policy uh, having been in place for so long, they now have a very, they've got an awful lot of old people or, or aging people. Uh, and fewer younger people to support them. And that's just gonna create issues on its own. They also have one of the largest populations in the world, uh, but they're in a country that doesn't have uh, sufficient resources in a lot of different critical areas for the type of population they have, water being an extremely good example of that. Um, and uh, you know, on the public health side, uh, they, that was the epicenter of the COVID outbreak and whatnot. And um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I must assume, and I look to you to provide context here, but I must assume that, um, you know, given its, its history of governance, but given how many people there are and, and a lot of those challenges I just mentioned, um, the natural, uh, you mentioned there's sort of a tightening of control there, authoritarian control. I imagine that's sort of just sort of the, 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 the natural way in which we would expect China to react to a lot of these these big challenges is it's, it's, it's got to force a lot of people to get in line in order to be able to, you know, try to keep some of these problems as manageable as possible. Is that a fair assumption? Well, and I think it is. And I think that there's also uh, a question of um, coming to terms with the mindset of a tech economy. Uh, technology is a disruptive force. Uh, it it uh, un, unsettles uh, established arrangements uh, in um, in every sector, really, and that's not the uh, that's not something that is congenial. I think for the the regime in China, to uh, they like to be in control, and so they're dealing with. They would like to become a technological power in the world. They would like to have global uh, influence in technology and, to some degree, control. Uh, but to allow that process to take the course that it wants to take is going to mean uh, unsettling uh, a lot of the arrangements and threatening some of the established uh, order there. And that's the dialectic that's going on, I think, the tension that's going on. And, and you had a, a period of time, probably up until just a few years ago, where there was a lot of encouragement. Deng Xiaoping said, it's great to get rich, let's go get rich, uh, and then worry about the rest of it. Um, now it's a, the, the flow is, has come back the other way. And there's a lot of concern in many ways, valid concern about inequalities of income, about the demographic uh, challenges in China, but it, it's blended with this, uh, also authoritarian mindset that just is somewhat allergic to the, um, nature of, of an, a disruptive technological economy. And that's the tension that I think domestically the Chinese are struggling with and how we play into that and how our uh, technological uh, interface 
to that system uh, plays out is what I've been trying to look at. I don't portray myself as a, an expert on domestic Chinese culture or politics, but I know something about the American tech system and the way that it wants to interface and needs to interface uh, with the, the Chinese uh, system and uh, some of the risks that uh, crop up from that are, are what I've been focusing on in, in my recent uh, columns. All right. Well, let's let's get to your recent column there because you 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 basically just set the, a good context for how uh, China is is really trying to hold as many strings as it can, as tightly as it can, to control things. But it has this uh, just by its very nature this this disruptive force of technology it's trying to control. Um, and uh, you know, America being a, a, a very important player in that process as well adds additional uh, complexity to it. But basically, there's this grenade that's just gone off in the space, uh, and that is the shortage of supply in the semiconductor industry. Can you tell us why that is so important to China right now? Well, semiconductors are the, as it's been said, the oil of the 21st century. It's the resource that you need to run a tech economy. A digital economy is gonna, almost everything is gonna come back to the ability to create integrated circuits that make the products work, that make the uh, communications uh, in the networks uh, function. And so it's a crucial resource in our uh, 21st century, just as oil was in the 20th century or coal in the 19th century. And China, as it turns out, uh, is not really very well positioned in the semiconductor industry today. They uh, do not have a strong presence. Uh, the industry is divided into a number of different important segments. There is uh, the set of uh, designers, chip designers that uh, design the functionality that goes into these products. That's pretty much completely dominated by the U.S. Uh, industry today. China has very little um, presence in that. It's called the fabless sector of the IC world, the integrated circuit world. The, um, the designs are then taken to another uh, segment of the industry, which are uh, typically called the foundries that actually physically manufacture the chips. And once again, China uh, has a very limited presence in that segment. And perhaps ironically, the dominant presence in that segment is uh, Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, the, the Taiwanese uh, foundry industry is something like two thirds of the capacity uh, of the world capacity there. So the, the way that the, the industry works today is the designers, this is Qualcomm and NVIDIA and Broadcom and, and Xilinx and, and dozens of very successful, mo mostly American companies, take their designs to Taiwan and that's where the manufacturing of the chips is done. And it's a very productive symbiosis. Poor China, uh, mainland China is kind of not in that, they're not in that loop. They don't have a domestic strength in either side of that um, industry. And yet they 
manufacture many, many products, including iPhones and, and all sorts of other uh, electronic products where this is a crucial input. Uh, the, the chips that, that come from this uh, symbiotic relationship between the US and Taiwan are a critical resource for the Chinese industry. And they buy, the, the figure I saw uh, in Bloomberg was $350 billion a year of these chips. And 90% of those chips come from the US or from US owned companies, US controlled companies. So they have to be feeling a vulnerability about this. And the, the article that I wrote, I, you know, I started out as a kind of, uh, Oh, you know, you might almost say a fanciful historical uh, exercise to look at the parallels between the Japanese uh, in just prior to World War II were in a position where they were um, dependent upon a critical resource, oil at the time, that they did not control. And the U.S. was in a position to squeeze the pipeline on them. And it was that um, dynamic, most people would say, that was one of the major contributors to Japan's decision to go on the offensive and um, really and led to Pearl Harbor, among many other things, in 1941, 1942. And uh, what I drew as a parallel in the Forbes piece was uh, the vulnerability that mainland China has today in their mind, I think, and, and, and in reality, to um, a critical resource, the integrated circuits, the semiconductor business, that their economy and their military depend upon, that they don't control. And if I'm putting my mind in the mind, if I'm stepping into the shoes of uh, maybe some of the uh, thinkers in China about how they might solve this, well, there are two ways to solve it. One is they can grow their own industry. And without going into detail, I'll just summarize by saying they have not been very successful at that. And there are possibly good reasons why that's not the kind of thing that they're going to be very successful at with a top-down governmental approach. This is not putting a man on, this not putting a Mars lander on Mars or a man on the moon. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, a heavy government hand can go out and force it to happen perhaps. But building the semiconductor industry with the technology, the market orientation, they have not been successful with that. So their other option at some point might be to try to acquire um, a more direct control of the source and since the source sits right there in Taiwan, and that then connects to the um, multi-decade uh, political uh, uh, you know, nexus of, uh, of the mainland China versus Taiwan and, and all the claims there, uh, that's what I, I drew that parallel and you know, end it with a question mark, uh, whether or not that's going to tip China into uh, a military uh, move of some kind. Uh, you know, if I, I think there's a lot of tension in the system, in the global system, the global interaction between the West and China today. But I don't see military outcomes from our concerns about uh, human rights in, in uh, 
Central Asia. I don't see, you know, cybercrime, intellectual property theft, um, the wolf warrior syndrome. There are a lot of irritating uh, factors in the relationship and probably from our side as well. Audit standards in New York, of companies listed in New York. There are a lot of irritants in the system, but those irritants, I don't see them promote, provoking a military response. This semiconductor scenario um, starts to look like something that might cross that line. And that was the thrust of my sort of suggestive historical parallel between Japan in 1941 and China today. All right, thanks. And, and I just want to sort of hammer this home for folks. So, you know, what you're saying is, look, there's, there's lots of tensions between the US and China, just between, you know, like there are between any great nations, none of which seems to be really worth going to war over, unless you say China got so desperate here that it decided it needed to basically annex Taiwan forcibly to be able to get control in the semiconductor space that it is so highly dependent upon right now and for its future, correct? Well, and, and consider the fact that in the last uh, year or two or three, um, for, for let's say a, a parallel set of reasons in a way, the US has decided to crack down on one of the major Chinese champion companies, Huawei, in the wireless world that I used to be, belong, be a part of. And they've really, they've really crippled uh, Huawei. They have, um, been able to deny them access to uh, U.S. semiconductor design and U.S. semiconductor manufacturing, and uh, I, you know, I, I think uh, it has definitely impacted Huawei's standing in the world and their market share. And it's a demonstration of what can happen if the West and if the United States, for policy reasons, decides that they want to pinch that pipeline. Uh, they can really do some serious harm. And that, that's the other aspect of what I think must be in the heads of some of the folks in China these days. They're realizing they have a vulnerability. It's not a hypothetical vulnerability. They can look at the Huawei case and see uh, a clear demonstration of the exercise of this power. All right, so uh, let me ask you this, George, then. So um, China is aware of how really incredibly dependent they are on these semiconductors. The, the products they manufacture just don't work without them. Their military is dependent upon them. The US has al already, as you're saying, sort of weaponized the semiconductor um, yeah. by withholding it from a key uh, uh, company there in the state, you know, doing what you've said is real material damage to it. Uh, and then COVID disrupted the supply chain uh, of the semiconductor industry. And, you know, we here in the West, you know, we see, you know, the shortage and all sorts of things, you know, car prices uh, have just exploded because there's tons of cars that have been built, but are sitting there in parking lots, new cars, uh, because they don't have the chips uh, in them that they need to actually function, right? And that's rippling across the world. I'm sure China is feeling this semiconductor dependency even more acutely because of this supply chain disruption. So I guess first question for you is, uh, what's your general estimate of how long it will take before the shortages in the semiconductor supply chain begin to equilibrate? And, and, and could that ratchet sort of 
the tension, this pinch point down if semiconductors get back to flowing sort of the way they were before COVID? Or do you think that we're in a kind of a new world era here where, where China's gonna increasingly have to uh, fight hard for, for that semiconductor supply? Well, one of the difficulties of this industry is it's not easy to add capacity. It's not quick to add capacity in the semiconductor business. Uh, a, you know, everybody's familiar with Moore's law, uh, which refers to how the technology progresses and gets cheaper and better over time. There's a, a, a corresponding law that has also been identified, which basically goes the other way and says the cost of a new fabrication facility in semiconductors is going to double every several years. And you're up to a, a situation today where if you want to build a new plant, it's going to take a few years to do it. It's going to cost more than the cost of a nuclear power plant or an aircraft carrier. We're talking, let's say, anywhere from seven to $20 billion. And the plant is going to have an effective lifetime of maybe five years. And you need at least two of them because you're going to have capacity issues to be managed. So Intel and Samsung and uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corp, which are the three big foundry players uh, in the world today, each of them has uh, announced a hundred billion in the in the range of a hundred billion dollars, three hundred billion dollars altogether, of projected investment in the coming years to stay in front of the capacity uh, demand that they see coming. And you know that that money, just the scope of that investment, tells you this is not something they're going to go out and adjust and solve within a three to six month time frame. This is about breaking ground, uh, you know, literally breaking ground in uh, new fields, new areas to build uh, massive new fabrication facilities. Mm -hmm. So I guess my answer, you know, not again that I'm not a, a, a it's not my expertise to, to track the market um, professionally in detail, but what I know about the, the technology here tells me that it's going to be uh, it's going to be a while that we're going to have this constraint. And at the same time, it's not just the constraint of the supply chains being disrupted by the pandemic. It's the constraint of the demand surge in the West. What you know, our economy this year is going to grow eight percent, something like that. Um, this this is. Um, we're in a demand uh, crisis, so to speak, in the positive sense. The demand for these products is going is growing faster. The automotive, I just saw the, the compound annual growth rate of automotive, the use of automotive chips is something like 15% a year at this point. Uh, th this is gonna put stress on the whole system for, for a number of years, I project, I would project. And, that stress is going to be felt by everybody, but it's going to be it, it's going to add to this um, geopolitical stress that we've just been talking about in, in terms of China's vulnerability and their assessment of how they might deal with it. All right. Well, um, this was the main reason why I wanted to have you on, George, was just to help people really become aware that, um, you know, most wars have always been wars of resource. 
Um, certainly for the past hundred years, you know, oil has sort of been the, the dominant driver of a lot of geopolitical conflict. Uh, you even just mentioned why it was a driving force for Japan entering World War II. Um, and that um, semiconductors, you know, likely may need to be added to the list going forward of, of what drives you know, military uh, conflict. Um, all right, well, look, uh, China has some other issues that we didn't talk about as well. And I don't want to uh, keep you on to go in depth into them because I, I don't know if they're really in as much your area of expertise. But, um, you know, this week, uh, we've been seeing lots of headlines of the failure of a, uh, a large uh, uh, property developing and lending company there uh, called Evergrande. Um, and a lot of people are calling this uh, potentially China's Lehman moment, uh, obviously referring back to the failure of Lehman Brothers, which sort of kicked off the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. Um, I, we just talked about sort of the the tensions and the, the the pain that China's feeling over the shortage in semiconductors here, and then if it ends up having a you know economic or or uh, you know uh, I don't want to say collapse, but but uh, maybe cascade there in its financial system coming after this this Evergrande bankruptcy, which it looks like it's entering into, um, does that sort of ratchet up the pressure on China uh, to the point where it, it potentially may may need to take more drastic steps uh, you know, in response to uh, whatever economics pain it's feeling, that it may feel like that's the trigger that it needs to then just take a bold step, like potentially going after Taiwan. I mean, is that, is, is that a worry of yours in, in terms of how well you know China, or do you think that that'll be a little bit more contained? Well, the financial system in uh, China is also uh, going through its process of um, trying to compress you know, you just think of all the history in the U.S. going from, uh, you know, the, the crises in uh, the early part of the 1900s through the formation of the Federal Reserve, the Great Depression, all that, figuring out what, how the, figuring out how the system works, and we're still figuring out how the system works, and, and China is trying to compress all of that in an incredibly short time to become, to, to create a financial system that can be, um, on a par with the West. And, you know, they're going to go through these kinds of crises. Evergrande is going to be, I guess, the largest bankruptcy that China has seen. Uh, they're not the only ones. They, they bailed out uh, just about a month ago another very large um, financial company called Huarong, which um, I think they did the right thing to bail it out, but it's they're in the same. They have the same uh, challenges that our regulators had. You know, do we bail out Bear Stearns? Do we let Lehman Brothers go under? Do we then come back and and uh, bolster the the remaining um, uh, entities in the financial system because we're concerned about systemic risk? And you know, there there aren't necessarily uh, right answers to all of that, or at least not consistent answers that you can apply in a mechanical way. And China is, is going through, the Chinese regulators are going through the, the process of figuring out uh, how they're gonna manage a modern financial system. And the financial system is a high-tech system. I mean, that, that's what they're also, I think, coming to see with uh, their approaches to Alibaba, to Ant, the Ant Group, Jack Ma's empire, which is now being disassembled piece by piece, it appears. Um, so 
they they're not going to get an easy they're not, they won't have any easy time of it in the financial dimension either i think that's going to add to the pressure whether that interacts directly with their military thinking i i'm going to defer that to a military true military expert which i'm not but uh it's going to be um but those added pressures aren't going to help basically is what you're saying it's not going to help it's going to be a rough patch uh for china i you know the the the, the climate is uh is is changing over there and uh, the economic climate and and i think um we're going to see uh, a lot of stress in china i i would even say i i think the regime there may feel under some kind of threat in the coming period of time because they're making a lot of what would look like and what i will call at least they're making a lot of blunders their 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 moves in hong kong uh, they're undercutting what could have been a tremendous Hong Kong was one of the leading financial centers of the world, and I don't think it's going to be that in the in, in the future because of the uh, the steps that they're taking. And they um, they have they're they're creating problems that they are going that are going to pinch their uh, policy space pretty tight. I think you know they're now trying to rein in the tech companies, and what you're seeing is a lot of pullback from. Uh, of the innovators and tech entrepreneurs stepping aside from their lead role, stepping down as a CEO or as chairman. And they know what's, you know, they, they see the, uh, the demonstration effect of uh, things like stopping uh, the Ant Group's uh, IPO last fall uh, or uh, coming in two days after Didi went public in New York very successfully and basically cutting their legs out. They, they're not allowed to, uh, to, to acquire new customers all of a sudden. All their apps have been pulled from the store, the mobile stores. The, they're under regulatory, a barrage of regulatory uh, constraints all of a sudden, and their stock is down 50%. And the, stock, the, the tech sector in China has, has followed them right down. So there's, you know, you have to wonder at some point whether or not, um, there will be questions within the Chinese government about the wisdom of some of the steps that they're taking in these areas um, and whether there is a battle that goes on for who's going to be the one that is, is driving the, the ship is we'll have to see. But I, I think it is going to get rough. All right. So lots of uncertainty um, and, and rougher times ahead in your prediction. All right. So as we as we wind things down here, George, two last questions for you um first is, is 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 how concerned are you about the current situation there um is this just the growing pains of a you know a, a country that's uh accelerating its transition from a developing to a developed uh nation um and there's just going to always be bumps along the way or is this something that you feel portends um you know like you wrote about at World War II, you know, uh, one of those moments in time where a, a country sort of comes to an existential juncture where it needs to make, you know, big, bold and maybe desperate decisions. I, I think it could well be the, the latter uh, case here is that, uh, you know, this is if you if you follow the trajectory of their rhetoric and of the symbolic uh, uh, statements that they're making about 
um, you know, putting people on notice that they can't use the word Taiwan anymore in uh, describing certain types of offices or, or connections to the government, to the, the country there, the, the, the Taiwanese, uh, you know, you're not, I think it, it begins to look like there's an element of, uh, what would I want to say, hysteria, anxiety, um, an irrational component coming into what might have been previously sort of a very structural, okay, we, we claim Taiwan, but we're going to let it sort of be in limbo and we're not going to make a big issue out of it. They, they seem to be moving across that line a lot now in the, in the rhetorical space and the political space to make clear that they're, they're viewing this as a significant issue. And that, that's worrisome. And when I connected this to the semiconductor uh, economics and, and politics that we've been talking about, I guess um, it, it made me a little bit more anxious than I was when I started out thinking about it, definitely. Okay. And, and what will you be watching most closely as things unfold from here? With respect to the uh, semiconductor argument in particular, you're asking or? Uh, sure, but I just think sort of in general, like, you know, we're, if you're afraid that this is going to kind of reach a boiling point at some point, just what, what elements or what areas of, of China and uh, its policy decisions are you going to be watching most closely? Well, you know, there's a Chinese expression, as I understand it, which is uh, translated as um, kill chicken, scare monkey. And the idea is that um, you make a demonstration, a very perhaps uh, rough and brutal demonstration to show the larger audience that they need to change their behavior. And if that's what's going on, um, I think that's probably less worrisome. In other words, if they're making a, an example, however rough, of Jack Ma or of Didi, and the rest of the Chinese economic and tech community takes note and responds in the way that they want them to, I think the tensions may die down. Uh, and go back to more of a normal authoritarian relationship, but where there's still latitude for uh, entrepreneurs to develop and, and progress and move forward, and maybe the tensions will go down. So I guess I would be watching to see what happens in the next few months. Are these measures going to be ratcheted up? Are they going to, or, or are we going to see a, uh, um, you know, a, a withdrawal of some of the more severe, are, is DD going to be approved now to go back to business? Uh, is the ant group going to be allowed to do its public offering? Okay, they've been rectified, they've been restructured. Are we going to let them go public now and, and uh, uh, go back to some kind of status quo with the appropriate changes in place? Or is it really, uh, a case that winter is coming and the tech world is, is gonna be um, not <laughs> favored the way they were under the previous, uh, in the in, let's say the past 20 years, but is gonna start to face a, a 
serious uh, regulatory headwind that uh, may make it uh, impossible for China to continue their upward path in the tech world. And that's going to, you know, that's going to be, uh, they, they, if they can't solve their problems through internal technological development, they're going to look for the military answer. That, that's where the risk goes are right okay so um so we'll, well i guess we'll watch closely to see if they if they just end with the chickens or if they start progressively killing you know more and more bigger animals yeah exactly uh all right well look uh george thank you so much and again thank you uh, so much for for dropping everything you did when i called you to have this discussion um i think it's super fascinating and i think it's just sort of a, a vector that most of us really haven't been looking that closely at and didn't realize how strategically important it was um so anyways uh if folks have enjoyed this conversation and they would like to learn more about you follow you and your work where can they go well i work at a university today called stevens institute of technology it's here in hoboken new jersey right on the west bank of the hudson river um, and i run a whole bunch of finance related programs financial fintech research and that kind of thing. Um, so you can Google that. I also uh, more or less weekly write this uh, column at Forbes online. And um, you can find that again, Google my name and Forbes and you'll get to that. Uh, China is one of the, the topics I follow, but I do a lot of finance uh, related topics as well. So uh, anyhow, and I, I'm wide open anyone that wants to uh, email me or reach out that's that's cool too i i'm trying to be pretty responsive all right well you're a bold man and you were very responsive to me when i reached out so thank you so much uh george really appreciate you coming on fascinating discussion look forward to having you on the program again and uh again I just thank you so much for your time and your insights well thank you it, it has been fun that was your test i think and so uh, i'll say we passed <laughs> okay good great well thanks so much george all right we hope you've enjoyed this exploration with tech and finance professor George Calhoun. I was grateful George had come on the program on such short notice, as the challenges China faces that he and I discussed here build nicely on the interview I recently recorded with legendary investor Jim Rogers, which will be released on this channel this coming Friday. And if you'd like to see more interviews like this one with George, where we pull in a domain expert on short notice to make sense of important yet underappreciated developments unfolding in world events, let me know in the comments section below and we'll make more of them going forward. And if you haven't already, don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. These two steps may seem tiny, but they really do help us out if everyone watching this video does them together. Thanks for watching.